This is a story of loss, prostitution and addiction, told through the parents of a murdered girl. It is the story of how Michelle Bettles, a studious teenager from a good family, ended up selling her body on the streets to feed a heroin habit, and her mum and dad's 17-year search for their daughter's killer. Welcome back to Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. I'm a journalist at the Eastern Daily Press in Norwich, and this podcast looks at some of the most troubling cold cases in East England. We live with it every day. You'll see a girl with long hair and walks a little bit like Michelle. And for that split second in your brain, you'd think, oh, is it? Mm. Um, when I got to see, see her children. Um, and her daughter looks so like her. It's unbelievable. Like a walking double. Yeah, she's got like, long hair like Michelle had. And oh, she's so much like her. Yeah, and her mannerisms and the way she holds herself. And you know what I mean? So it's like... Like looking at her again, which doesn't help me. Yeah. I mean, it's her fortieth birthday this year, and you think, well, we should all now be getting together. It's not going to happen, is it? That's Michelle's dad, John, and her mum, Denise. She has never spoken about this in public before. We're going to be hearing much more from them later on. But before we do that, I want to take you back seventeen years to the night of March the twenty-eighth, two thousand and two. It is eight thirty p.m., and a young woman dressed in a long black leather coat with wide lapels, a red t-shirt, red skirt, beige tights and long black boots is walking down St Benedict Street in the centre of Norwich. She is thin and pale with dark wavy hair. Michelle was five foot four inches with distinctive thick black eyebrows. The 22 year old street sex worker was on her way from the flat she shared with a man called Marcus to what was then known as the Block, an area to the east of the city centre which served as the red light district. She already had an appointment with a regular client that night at 9pm, near to her flat on Deerham Road, but she didn't show up to that, and it appears she had no intention to. CCTV images show her walking in the opposite direction. The mother of three was seen later that night by another prostitute, at around 11.30pm. She was standing on City Road, touting for trade, near the edge of the block. Other prostitutes would later say Michelle tended to work by herself on the edge of the red light district away from CCTV cameras and away from the best-lit parts of the area. A second suspected sighting of her came just after midnight nearby. Two days later, on Sunday morning, a retired farm worker was walking his dog in the Norfolk countryside near a village called Scarnin, 20 miles west of Norwich. As Mr Hunt strolled down Podmore Lane near his home at 10.15am, he spotted something red in a copse of trees near a stream. It looked like someone had dumped a dummy, he said. But then I could see it was a human being, and the most striking thing was her boots. She was propped up, and it was like she had been carried and placed there and not dragged. He made no attempt to hide the body. It was obviously a nasty shock. I went straight home, and my brother Kenneth phoned the police. It didn't take long for the police to identify Michelle. She had been strangled to death, but was fully clothed. They believed she had only been dumped there that morning, or the night before, and had been killed elsewhere. But where... Why and by whom? Those questions have never been answered by police. John and Denise had split when Michelle was still young, but he started seeing his daughter again when she was a teenager. To me, she was always bright, happy, cheerful. I used to to travel down to Norfolk to see her. Go out for a few hours together, we'd have a laugh and a joke. Um, I never had a clue at any point what she was doing. To me, she was just a well-dressed young girl with a terrific figure, 
that you were proud to walk out with and say, yeah, I'm her dad. However, she was harboring a dark secret from both her parents. She had fallen into drug addiction and turned to prostitution to feed her habit a few years before. Her mum knew she had problems such as an eating disorder, but she had no idea about the drugs or prostitution. When she was growing up, even at 13, 14, I mean, she was always ultra thin, always. And then I found out the sand just being stuffed at the side of her, her bed and things like that. Um, well, she wouldn't eat. That's, I mean, there's ever something wrong. She couldn't end up being that thin if she didn't, you know, she didn't eat at all. Was it only after her death that you found out, firstly, about the drugs and secondly, about the prostitution? Well, she kept making funny comments, like when I was out with her, she'd say, well, I can get money right quick. Because we were, something, something we were talking about, I thought, well, where can you get money right? Michelle was so shy. I couldn't believe in a million, would you? No way under the sun would, that must have been the drugs that's made her, obviously she wanted the money for the drugs and made her go on the streets, but I just didn't believe it. I really, I still to this day, it's still hard to believe that she'd ever do anything like that, ever. Did she talk about where she was making her money from or getting an income from? No, well no, she was working, she's, um, she, would you believe all the, all the qualifications she had and how bright she was, she ended up, I think, cleaning in down the road there or something. And I used to meet her after work. So I never, I didn't know. I didn't know where she was getting the money from. I, no way, I didn't know. I mean, she never flashed money about. She never looked like she got a lot of money. And we never, just had no clue what, she, what her lifestyle was. It was like there was this brick wall she'd put up. I'd say, well, how was your mum? She'd say, oh, she's fine. Everything's cushy, which was her favorite saying. Everything's cushy. Yeah, Everything's cushy. Yeah. That, that, that it's was almost it. a defence mechanism, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, looking back now, I thought, well, if I'd have been more aware, I'd have, I'd have picked up on it was like a one, one word thing, cushy. That everything's cushy. That's it. But at the time, you just think, oh, that's good. They're, they're all right. How how did Michelle hide her drug addiction and her lifestyle from? from... Well, when she was sixteen, she moved out anyhow. Social services got involved because. Um, she just got out of control. She, everything I'd done for her, she rebelled and, you know, she just didn't want to be in the house anymore. And in the end, I said to social services, you're going to have to help me because she's gone mad. She's, like, kicking... She was just doing crazy things, wasn't she? And I don't know. I don't really know what how she'd done it, but she they moved her into a little self-contained flat where she had other people around her as well. And that's where she was from 16, so she could easily cover up then. So obviously you should come and see me, but you can't, if you're not living with them, you can't really, well, you didn't know, did you, well, when we, you met We were brought up in a time when drugs weren't around. Yeah, I didn't know what to so look for. So we wouldn't think what to look for or anything else. It was a far cry from the smart pupil who excelled at languages and music just a few years earlier at her local secondary school, Earlham High. She was really, really a happy little girl. She had a brother as well. Um, never no trouble. Not one, and that's not just because I'm saying it because I'm a mother, but she wasn't no trouble. That got to about the age of 14, she then started going out with boys and, you know, going out night times. Normal and that's when, but yeah, she's smoking what they do, you know. Um, I didn't like it when she came home and I found out she was smoking. Um, but just the normal teenagers. But 
growing up she was a perfect little girl she really was really intelligent loved her languages german and french and she was top in the class of both of them and she really i mean she was going to go big time she could, i think she would have ended up in university if she hadn't got drugs and what do you know what she know. was hoping to do when, when she was growing up you sort of later on in life um i don't know not really what did she yeah, say I, to you well, i spoke to michelle about it and she was more about working as a translator or something in the travel industry, using the languages. Uh, so she get, loved her languages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Apparently, I was thick because I'm useless at languages. <laughs> and and when, when did you start noticing changes in, in Michelle? When she was 14. That was like the perfect girl, and then, like, literally, and I mean literally, overnight, it was like a click and 14, and that was it. She went like out night times. Before that, she never went out night times. So you say, well, Michelle, go out with your friends and that. She never wanted to. And then all of a sudden, that that was it. She wanted to go out every night. She was skimming down drain pipes. Um, what, to get without you noticing? Yeah, without me noticing. Smoking, drinking, because I don't smoke or drink. You can smell it instantly when they come in, on the clothes, everything. Well, um, And that's when me and her really started to fall out big time because I was so angry with her. Thought she was just wasting all her life, you know. It really was. So the changes you noticed in her weren't physical changes, they were just the way she was acting. In them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just kind of being put down as a rebellious teenager. I mean, some, some teenagers go that way and some don't. And some just rebel against society for a little while and kick a few doors and go on to grow up. And, and then she life. met her father of the children and he was a drug dealer. And I think that's where all that started. Chris, Michelle's on-off boyfriend and father of her children, has since died. And she was living apart from him and the children at the time of her death. So she met Chris, who was to become her boyfriend. And what age was she? Then? Fifteen. Fifteen. And they had yeah. three children, very young, didn't they? Very, very. First boy at 17. Then she had a girl, and then she had another son a year after. So by the time she was, what, 21? 22, 22, yeah. 22, she had three. Three children. Three children. Mm-hmm. And then she split up from the partner, from her. Well, no, she was she split up from anyhow. She was split up and just kept going back and forwards. And that's when she got pregnant and, you know, then was, she'd leave him. It's like a yo-yo relationship. Yeah. She'd spend a certain amount of time with him. But, but we've found out so much more since she died and from the children, actually. And so... Michelle wasn't able to play much of a role in their early upbringing because of the addiction. Yeah. The youngest one was only two, three when she died anyhow, so he, never, he can't remember her. Yeah. Um, the one can't remember her. Uh, the girl claims she can't remember. But she can. Um, the oldest one can. Can, um, yeah. What, what impact has it had on, on the two who can remember? <sighs> well, there's only one really, I think, that remembers him mainly, but he uh, has autism Asperger's. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm one of the few people that he communicates properly with. And over a period of time, he's told me horrendous things that happened we never knew about. Journalist Richard Bulls, who covered this case as crime correspondent for the Eastern Daily Press, said Michelle's descent was one of the saddest aspects. One of the things that really struck me about the Battles case, and I think, you know, you never let these things kind of affect you when you're reporting because you have to take a dispassionate view but I think one of the things that was particularly sort of upsetting really and brought it home for a lot of people who read about the case was that she came from a pretty ordinary background. Um, She'd been to uh, Earlham High School, she'd grown up in in Bothorpe, Um, she had a particular talent for languages 
Um, she was quite a bright girl uh, and had a you know pretty stable home life. And I think that was one of the things that really was was so sad. You know, she was she was very young. She's only in her early twenties when it happened. Um, but and also I think particularly sad was the fact that the family didn't know that she had been involved in prostitution. By the time Michelle's body was found, Norwich had got used to prostitutes disappearing. She was the third street worker in just two years to be killed. Streets of Fear ran a headline in the evening news after her body was discovered, and there were fears a ripper was on the loose. In June 2000, prostitute Kelly Pratt, 29, disappeared from the red light district. Her body has never been found, but she is presumed dead. She was last seen arguing on her phone in the city centre. Then the body of Hayley Curtis from Thetford was discovered buried in Hampshire, South England, in January 2002. The 23-year-old vanished from Mile Cross in Norwich in October 2001. A man called Philip Stanley was later convicted of her murder. Eight years earlier, another Norwich prostitute, Natalie Pearman, just 16, was found strangled to death and dumped in a lay-by at Ringland Hills outside Norwich. Again, her killer has never been found. Here is what Richard remembers. Although everyone accepts that prostitution comes with, with prostitution comes that you know a, a lot of vulnerability for the women that are involved uh, and everybody knows that and the red light area in Norwich was pretty pretty thriving at the time I think it had a huge impact uh, on that because um, even given the the sort of environment they were working in the fact that three women uh, had you know had been killed and and also the fact that n- none of those uh, murders had been solved as well. Was was you know obviously the people responsible were still out there. So was so when the when the Michelle um, Michelle's murder happened. When when that case came in, what what was the feeling in in the newsroom? Was it a sort of oh god, you know, here we go again. Another woman has been taken. For sure. I mean, obviously there was a possibility. There was always the possibility, I guess, uh, that they might be linked because in the absence of any arrests uh, in relation to Hayley Curtis or, or um, Callie Pratt. Uh, there, you know, there, there was always possibility that uh, one, you know, one person was was killing prostitutes. I mean, as we know, uh, some years later happened uh, down in Ipswich. We'll be talking more about that later on. I don't think that is the case here. Um, so I think it's unlikely that they're linked. But certainly, it was uh, it was a major story in in uh, in Norfolk at the time. And the you, you said that the the red light district was was thriving at the time, I and mean, we're we're sitting what about 50 meters away yeah. from what was once the the heart of the Norwich Red Light District yeah. in in the office which which you used to work in yeah. what what was it like back then yeah i mean definitely um even if you were driving into work walking into work uh, along Ruon Road and you'd see uh, you'd always see girls in the same kind of locations so um at the Normandy Tower there was usually one person at least or two girls there uh, there was a phone box a little further on there was always somebody standing around there top of music house lane uh, and, and then sometimes a little bit further up. So there was always um, women, and when you left here at night, you know, if you left us after the end of a shift on the EDP uh, at night time, there was always women uh, on on the street here. Also some on sort of Thorn Lane and Burr Street as well. So I mean, this area was known as the Block, and you know, and it was there were there were it was visibly a, a red light area. I mean, anyone who lived in Norwich at the time uh, would have been familiar with the fact that if if someone had said where is the red light area, they would have said Ruan Road. And Michelle was last seen, I think, on on the edge of what was then the block on um, yeah. on City Road. Yes, that's interesting because um, uh, that that area I think was away from the CCTV cameras. I believe that was probably her thinking. 
Um, but also, when I spoke to Tracy Kennett, uh, who was a young girl who knew, who was also a prostitute and who knew Michelle, she had explained that uh, if somebody kind of took Michelle's turf or if somebody sort of muscled in on, on where she normally uh, worked from, she would just move on. She wouldn't, you know, sort of it couldn't contest that. So it may be that she had been working, you know, this in this area and then had decided to go City Road because, you know, there were fewer women um, trying to operate from there. But also, I suppose it's, it's, it's better for, she may have felt that it was better for the clients. Uh, you're more likely to pick up clients if they knew they weren't going to be caught on CCTV cameras. So she, she was extra vulnerable in a way, wasn't she? Because she was working on the very edge of the district, away yep. from the most yep. well-lit areas, the, the CCTV, other people, yep. um, you know, right on the edge there where no one noticed when she... No, I mean, she was vulnerable, and uh, I think she also used to go to clients' homes, uh, which is not something that all prostitutes will do. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, the activity would take place in a car or, um, you know, somewhere nearby, but often prostitutes wouldn't go to somebody's home because, you know, they'd they'd feel that would be too unsafe, really. Um, Michelle uh, used to go to people's homes. And and after her disappearance, and what what was what were the the girls you were talking to for for your stories saying? I mean, they were worried. Um, I think they were definitely worried because, like I say, even given the environment they are working in, it, the fact that it was another another girl taken from from the block, um, and it, she was the third one, and they, the others were unsolved. They they it, I think it did unnerve them. Then again, having said that. You know, prostitution is largely, as we know, driven by uh, drug addiction. So, in fact, uh, you know, even even when something like that happens, they often don't change their behaviour. And in fact, they were still. I mean, for me to be able to interview them about various things as crime correspondent, I mean, I could just literally leave my desk, walk five minutes down Ruan Road, and and there would be someone to you know to talk to. And they would be willing to talk and offer information. Or yeah, it? I mean, so, sometimes no, um, depending on who it was. But sometimes they would. Sometimes they would talk um, about about different things. And certainly they were were worried. They would have known. I mean, I think they pretty much all knew each other. So the chances are that the others knew Michelle at least to see, if not better than that. Mm. Uh, I think they did kind of look out for each other a bit. I think there is that kind of uh, loyalty between them. I think they did look out for each other in terms of safety. But as you said, uh, Michelle chose to work on the outside of, of the block. So we've heard a little bit about what the red light district in Norwich was like. And we've heard what Michelle was like as a child and growing up. Let's now go back to April the 1st, 2002, when police broke the news to Michelle's parents. It was strange. It was April the 1st. Yeah. And I was at home digging a pond, would you believe, with my son. And all of a sudden, two police officers turned up and said, we want to talk to you, and I've got some friends who are quite clever at doing pranks. And straight away I thought, yeah, okay. And then they showed me the warrant cards, and I thought, what's wrong? And it was just like, it's not real. Well, I was at work, and they walked in to Blue's and they you know, I was at sort of petrol station. So they just walked in with one of my colleagues and I wondered what in the world she was doing there because I wasn't supposed to work on my own. And that's when they told me, just walked in. I said, you, that day, in that minute, you remember for the rest of your life. You really remember that. 
And then what what happened after that? What, what do you remember of, of the time of, of the police investigation and, and how everything developed? First week or so, they seemed to make a lot of progress. Then they changed, the person in charge was going on holiday, would you believe, and they appointed another senior officer. Looking at how it was going, um, I spoke to my uncle, he's a retired ex-officer, who was quite high up in the force, and his comments to me was, why are they spreading the investigation so wide, so quick? You mean geographically? Yeah, well just too many people, too big an area. He said, he said you've got to narrow it down and concentrate it. He said, if you, if you go too wide, too fast, you're going to walk past somebody. And that was his words, not mine. And they did have you know, hundreds and hundreds of leads, didn't they, and, and, yeah. and lines of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I read, the investigation did obviously focus on where, where we're sitting now and what was the, mm-hmm. the block, the red light district. Yeah. It, it was a little bit different to what the investigation was actually doing. The investigation was actually covering as far as field as Ipswich. They followed the lead up into Yorkshire. There was Swaffham. And I believe there was a couple more leads that were even further afield, and there was some down in the south of England as well. The reason police spread their net wide was the number of different leads they were getting in. They had around 1,600 lines of inquiries, and they would end up taking 700 DNA samples to try to find men Michelle had been with. Curb crawlers from Norfolk's neighbouring counties were investigated, and more than 500 people would be quizzed over the killing. The investigation naturally focused on Norwich's red light district, the last place she was seen alive and her place of work. But police said at the time there was nothing to indicate that she was necessarily killed by someone who had had sex with her. Could it have been someone who knew her rather than a random client? To solve the riddle, the police investigation also focused on trying to find Michelle's missing items. She didn't carry a bag, but the night she went missing, she had in her pockets a black hairbrush with cream bristles, a cigarette lighter, a packet of tobacco and Rizzler papers. The distinctive long black leather coat she wore has also never been found. Another lead the police hoped to track was the sighting of a 4x4 vehicle on Saturday March the 30th, close to where her body was found. It was seen by people in the area at 9.30pm. They heard its engine racing and said it drove away at speed. It travelled towards the town of Deerham, away from the spot where Michelle was discovered, but it was never traced. The post-mortem revealed Michelle had been taking drugs and had been dead for about 24 hours before her body was found, leading police to the conclusion that she was killed somewhere else and then dumped in Scarning overnight on Saturday. That would mean she was killed on Friday. Detective Superintendent Chris Grant, who headed the murder inquiry, said at the time, I'm satisfied she was killed well before she was left at Scarning. Her body would have been kept somewhere in the meantime. But where? A search of the spot at Scarning yielded no clues. But then detectives found an unusual combination of plant and tree material on her hair and clothing. Experts said the plants did not usually grow together and did not come from the area where her body was dumped. The samples did eventually come to match those taken from a private property a few miles outside of Deerham, which was known to be associated with drugs and prostitution. But the lead hit a dead end there. Here is Richard. Clues were uh, limited and pollen found on her clothing was something that police could actually go after. Uh, it was unusual. It didn't appear to match the site. As you said, uh, the, the, the site in Scarning was just a wood, and I don't think the kind of pollen that was found on her clothing would have been present uh, there. So the police, and I think it was quite an unusual um, plant, 
sort of police felt that that was something that they could potentially try and match up with a location uh, where uh, where that was prevalent. And they did alight on a guy who I think had a, a, a in the past had a normal relationship with it. He, he was married, uh, had a job, and so on. But it, he'd had a huge drink problem. Everything had come crashing down. His marriage, lost his marriage, lost his job. He was just living in this farmhouse. Um, the police knew there was drug activity and prostitutes visiting that address. Um, and I think it was also anecdotally known that Michelle either might have or did visit that place. Uh, and they did find pollen uh, of that kind there, but it was never enough to, uh, you know, to secure anything more. Do you remember where that place know. was? It was it was out in the sort of Deerham area, and I think that was the other thing that interested the police. I can't remember the exact location, but because it's obviously relatively close to Scarning, that made the police even more interested, um, because obviously you know the body could have been taken from there or stored there, and and then taken to the to the deposition site. But uh, again. That just, um, the trail ran cold. Adding to the Deerham link was the belief that the killer was local because of the spot Michelle was found. There's got to be a possibility that the offender either lives in the Deerham area or has associations with it, Superintendent Martin Wright said. Unless you are local to this area, you would never have dreamt of putting anybody there. It's not consistent with picking up a girl in the city, killing her, then heading towards Kings Lynn, pulling off the road and leaving her there where she was left in that place. I mean, we couldn't even find it, could we? We went there two or three times and we ended up either going a different way or coming out a different way because yeah. part of the way, there's no road signs. Yeah, it's really weird. So whoever was there had got to know exactly where they were going on that area. The leads which came to nothing led to great frustration for Denise and John. The case went along I started to get my doubts and my belief in what was happening. Why was that? Well, the number one nail in the coffin was forensic evidence. There's a fine powder found on Rochelle, and they insisted that this powder, when they found out what it was, would be a major breakthrough, because it was such fine quality. It was very, very expensive to make, and it was sent off to forensics somewhere in Cambridge. I never got the answer, and I suddenly wondered, I said, well, what happened to the white powder? this wonderful answer and there was rather a long pause and they looked at each other and then one of them said to me it's bird muck a forensic laboratory has taken three months to discover bird muck today 17 years later this is definitely a cold case but at the time there were two arrests a drug dealer called john benson who lived on ruin road which is part of the red light district in norwich was arrested after mouthing off to people about Michelle owing him money. Police could find no evidence against him, and he was released without charge and died in 2005. A year after her murder, a second man was arrested in April 2003, and this was far more promising. Police first came across the 30-year-old man by trawling through car registration plates seen in the red light district. The owner of one vehicle was contacted, and he insisted he had never frequented the block but he told police his daughter's boyfriend had also used his car. When officers knocked on the boyfriend's door and showed him a photograph of Michelle, he denied ever seeing her or going with prostitutes and signed a statement saying that. He also provided a mouth swab. A year later, that mouth swab provided a DNA match to DNA found on Michelle. The son of the retired police officer was arrested. For hours, he denied ever being with her, but eventually he began to talk 
and he admitted he had picked up Michelle on the evening of Tuesday, March 26, 2002. He said that was the only time he had ever used prostitutes and the only time he'd been with Michelle. He said a taxi driver picked Michelle up from his home and he never saw her again. That was two days before she disappeared. Police traced the taxi driver who confirmed he had picked Michelle up from the man's home on that Tuesday. He said he remembered it because she had given him £20 to cover the £13 fare and dropped another £20 note in the back of his taxi before getting out in the city centre. So the suspect's story checked out for Tuesday, but that does not mean he did not return two nights later when Michelle disappeared. He told police that on that Thursday he stayed at home with a migraine, but he had lied repeatedly to police previously and mobile phone records showed he had made a large number of calls on the night Michelle disappeared. However, police could not pinpoint where those calls came from, and he was released without charge. police officer's son was... I was living in uh, Thetford then, and he was being held at the police station at Thetford. And, well, you can imagine, can't you? <laughs> Just want to go... You don't know, see what I mean, you know? Even with him, oh. there were some massive mistakes. I was just talking genuinely with the FBI's on. They said something about he'd used three mobile phones that night. The night Michelle was last thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the night that Michelle was either gone missing or she was found, but over that period of time, he was supposed to be home with a migraine, he'd been on his computer, blah, blah, blah. And I said to them, well, have you tracked the phones? And they seemed very naive on to how to do it. And I said, well, I know somebody who works for, works for BT, I'll ask them. And he said, well, all they've got to do is get the phone number, trace the call through the mass, we can triangulate it, and within a matter of metres, you can tell them at any time that day where he was. And it took Norfolk Police about a year before they decided to try and do this. No, of course, that's gone. They then came up with the excuse that um, all the data's gone now. So again, I went back to my friend and spoke to him, and he says, no, the data's stored for at least four years. He says, that data is still there. And you got this impression that it was either down to cost, because they would have had to take, pay the operating companies. But did they ever do that? Not as far as I know. All because that taxi driver saw him two days before. Doesn't mean to say that he didn't meet Michelle again in the meantime. I mean, DNA would still be DNA. It wouldn't have a date on it saying, I arrived on Wednesday at three o'clock. And they seem, I don't know, they just seem very reluctant sometimes. They got this mindset on, well, this has got to be set in concrete because that's what we've, that's what we've decided. And did that reluctance increase as, as time went on? It's still increasing even today. Do you get the impression that there was like a reluctance of people to come forward and, and speak to police? Because, yeah, because other drugs, people. My son knows a lot, awful lot as well. I mean, you know, he's not put on the bike, but he does. And she used to talk to him like all the time. They were so close. Um, but like he said, I'm not going to grass. I mean, that's his sister. He's not going to grass. Yeah, but Chris said the same thing. Yeah, oh, I'm Chris not said, grass. I'm yeah. Not yeah. Mother is children, and yet he's not going to grass. As you can tell from the length of time it took police to track down the second man arrested, clients of Michelle's were not exactly keen to come forward. But that reluctance to speak extended to the whole investigation and severely hampered it. Here's Richard. I, I was very close to the investigation team and I used to meet them regularly to get updates, but it, uh, it was incredibly slow. I mean, you had everything against it, really. I mean, A, it was a prostitute and um, you've got all kinds of things there that 
that obviously with clients being being unwilling to talk because they don't want their wives, girlfriends, friends to know that they're using prostitutes. Um, so you've got a lot of people who would also be scared of coming forward because even if they knew that they hadn't, you know, even if they hadn't killed her, but they knew that they had been with her, um, you can you can imagine how terrified they would have been in terms of coming forward. So it's incredibly difficult. I mean, from the police's point of view, that's that's a bit of a nightmare scenario, really. Um, and also, because of the chaotic lifestyle of prostitutes, and also where you've got multiple DNA, uh, it's very, very difficult. People think that DNA is some kind of panacea that if you once you've got DNA, you're 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 on your bike. You know, you can you can solve it. With prostitution, you know, it's it's harder to uh, because obviously they're seeing. You know, they could see potentially three, four, five clients on one evening. So multiple uh, DNA samples, partial samples, some of them were very difficult. Michelle was the third um, prostitute to be killed um, in the area at that time. Was that in your mind, was that in your thoughts as well, that, that this could be the work of a, of a serial killer? No, oh, yeah. There's so many links. They're there, but somebody's just got to put that little last piece in it. But I always have a theory at the moment that um, the police know who's done it, but it's that person serving time, and they're not. not and they're not bothered. Them. They're not bothered. So you're you're referring to Steve Wright, aren't you? Yeah. It's the name which keeps coming up when you talk about cold cases in this part of the world. Steve Wright, the Suffolk Strangler. He was jailed for life in 2008 for killing five prostitutes in Ipswich in 2006. We spoke about him in the last podcast on the Jeanette Kempton case and his possible links to that. His links to Michelle are more vague than Jeanette's and have been repeatedly ruled out by police. But so you know what they are, I'm going to go through them very briefly here. Wright was living in Suffolk, the county south of Norfolk, when Michelle was killed. But prostitutes would later say he did come to Norwich and use the red light district in the city at the time. He was also a cross-dresser. This is important because it's a link which only emerged in 2012. Michelle told Denise that she had got in a car with a man dressed as a woman. A link was later made to Steve Wright, as other prostitutes in Norwich said Wright liked to dress up as a woman. These links were explored by criminologist Professor David Wilson in 2012. He also pointed out that like Michelle, Wright dumped his victims near water, and there was a very slim likelihood that two serial killers with the same modus operandi were operating in East Anglia at the same time. John helped Professor Wilson produce a TV programme on this, in which the criminologist concludes, We've got to convince the police to take seriously the assaults that happen on young sex workers. And if the Norfolk police reopened the Michelle Bettles case, and if they went on the same journey as me, I'm sure their journey would end where mine has. I interviewed a certain, I spoke to a bus driver, and he said about was Steve Wright active at the time of Michelle's disappearance in Norwich. And their reply was yes. It's and they knew him, didn't they, because he cross-dressed? Yeah. yeah. And Michelle had already mentioned to Denise about I don't think seeing a man that cross-dressed. Well, no, M- Michelle said she got in a car with a man with fishnet tights uh, skirt up to there and I thought well and that was a man dressed up and I did even then put two and two together just did not what is she talking about sort of thing I didn't didn't know she was a prostitute I didn't know nothing like this so uh, 
But then when uh, Dave Wilson mentioned it, I thought, well, yeah, that's what Michelle told me. But no that, one that, asked me. You didn't think that but no one asked me. Until years no. Or no one asked me. And so when, when the um, Ipswich girls started being killed, what, what were your thoughts at that time? My God, it... I was devastated. I, I mean, to read it in the papers, it was like bringing it all back. It was like Michelle again, all over again. Same, she was left strangled, she was left in the middle of a little wood bit where the rest had, and that was all too many familiar things. I said, well, is it starting all over again? Is, you know, is he come back? What's going on there? Um, but no one mentioned it. No one, I, I, like I said, I had to phone up the police and they said, well, have you got any information for me? I said, well, no, but you could have just rang up and, and said that's what you were doing rather than me reading it in the paper. You know, um, but now they didn't want to know. They put the phone down and that was the last thing I ever heard. So, um, and you had no contact with the police since? No. So is it fair to say then from sort of 2005 onwards when Steve Wright was arrested that, that Christmas, you've, you thought it's, it's got to be him, he must be linked yeah. It's not necessarily got to be, but there's, there's a high possibility. I mean, but mm. what you've got to remember is when, when all these murders are going on, we don't only think of us and Michelle, but other parents have got to go through what we did. And it's heart-wrenching. It really is. And it's just incredible that when it was going on, I had to rely on somebody I knew in the media to ring me up mm. and ask if anybody from Norfolk or Suffolk Police had contacted me. Mm. When the Steve Wright? Yeah. yeah. And when, he, when I said, well, no, I did, I've not been contacted whatsoever. And he was, he was just flabbergasted. He said, I've never come across this before. He said, it's one of the most major investigations Norfolk's ever seen. As the stage got towards the point they were going to charge Steve Wright, I had a phone call while I was at work. And it was an alleged reporter from the Daily Mirror. And that reporter claimed they were about to charge Steve Wright with Michelle's murder. And I sat on the road for I don't know how long. And I thought, well, I had not had a phone call. So I rang the reporter I've been speaking to. And he said, oh, I'm still here, John. He said, I don't know what you're on about. It was here, sir. And the police were, were quite quick, weren't they, to dismiss links between Steve Wright and Michelle. That's been my argument. Yeah. If it takes three Too months quick. to find mm. that the fine white powder is bird milk, yeah. how can Norfolk police dismiss the link so quickly? So quickly. I mean, they haven't even had time to analyse the case, uh, each one of those individual murders or, or, or cross the links at all. Do you know if mm. they tested you know, some DNA and things like that? We know nothing. We don't know. Maybe. No information. No. What would you like to happen now, what, what would you like the police to do? Well, I think all the unsolved murders of all the girls needs to be brought back to the surface and looked at, probably from a more modern angle, and it needs to be dug a lot deeper. I mean, there's always the excuse, oh, the CCTV cameras, half of them weren't working the night Michelle disappeared. Mm. They've never done a proper appeal. It's strange, because when Michelle was murdered, it was the same day or weekend that Queen Mum died. Queen Mum died, yeah. And at the time, I thought, well, she's probably done a favour and the media's going to be more interested in the Queen Mum than what they are in yeah. the show. But years later, I thought, well, actually, that probably did more harm than good. But the police, on every anniversary of Michelle's death, whether it's fell at Easter or not, they've never once made an effort to do an appeal. Now, what's there been... have been appeals in, in the media. Oh, there is. Oh, yeah, yeah. but not by the police. I've led those appeals. Okay, that's all you've ever done in that. I'm the one that's contacted the media. I'm the one that's pushed for these. 
Whereas the police, well, they just didn't want to know about it. I mean, to me, I looked at the East Angeles holiday resort. That was a bank holiday weekend. A lot of people came here for that weekend and went home after the weekend. Once you're away outside Norfolk, and I know by living in Yorkshire, the co coverage was very, very thin on the ground on Michelle's murder, and still is today. Yeah, it was all focused on, on the Norwich. On the Norwich area, yeah. precisely. Yeah. There's a lot of people in this area that don't come from here. There's people as well, they should be interviewing, they never interview. There's so many things that's been wrong. At first it hurts and everybody says to you, you'll be alright, I'll go away, but it doesn't. It gets deeper and deeper. And that's when you start getting angry with things that, that could have been done and have not been done. As I've said, Norfolk Police have constantly dismissed speculation which would link Steve Wright to Michelle Bettles. I asked them about it for this podcast. And a police spokesman said, Since his conviction, there have understandably been a number of reports speculating as to Steve Wright's potential involvement in other unsolved homicide and missing person cases, particularly those which have occurred within Norfolk and Suffolk. The Norfolk and Suffolk Joint Major Investigation Team have carried out extensive inquiries into Steve Wright's activities prior to the offences for which he was imprisoned. He has been a consideration in several unsolved case reviews across both counties and we remain open to any credible new information provided in this regard. However, it would be inappropriate to make comment on his or any other individual status as a suspect or otherwise, given these are all cases which remain unsolved and which are subject to review and potential reinvestigation. The case into Michelle's disappearance and murder remains an open inquiry and we would always welcome any new information which could help solve it. Any new information would be reviewed and acted upon, if found to be credible. As with all cold cases, we would update Michelle's family if and when we have any significant news. After recording this interview, John and I go to Michelle's grave in Earlham Cemetery in Norwich. Pati Troptot, taken too soon, reads the inscription on the gravestone. Standing here ten years ago, John met Denise again, and they've been back together ever since. If I put this on the radio, they say, no way is that going to happen, that is like a... No, that nah, just wouldn't happen. When uh, for Michelle's birthday, obviously, I was always going to the grave because I lived here then, and I was always going to the grave. And this one was special because this was her thirtieth birthday. Um, and so I was standing there, and then you turned up, didn't you, for her thirtieth? Strangely enough, I've turned up at every birthday since. Yeah. So I do, but we, we missed each other. But you yeah. haven't arranged to me. No, 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 no. no. We didn't even know I'd be one. Yeah, we just turned up. Well, I turned. I was standing there, sort of busy doing the grave and things like that. And then you turned up, and we started talking, and that was it. And that was ten years ago, exactly. But returning also brings a lot of emotion. We always have hope. There isn't a day go by without Denise and I, we, we talk about something about Michelle, what would she have done, especially this year, it'd been her 40th birthday. What would she look like? What would she have made of herself once her children had grown up? She, she was an intelligent girl. As we leave in the graveyard, John tells me why he still has hope. A few days ago, he found an address book belonging to Chris, Michelle's ex, whilst clearing out old things. It contains a list of names and he is handing it to police in the hope that one of those names may be of interest to police. Over the first few days before Michelle was actually found, we're still not sure when she was actually murdered. There's no significant time, date or proximity. But anybody who can remember anything, not only just at that time, but probably the week before, 
if you saw Michelle with someone, you know where Michelle was staying, living, had she got plans to move out of the area. But any light, significant little bit of information could lead to something else. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. If you found it interesting, please share and recommend it with friends and leave us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also find out more about this case on the Eastern Daily Press website. That's www.edp24.co.uk and tap in on the Unfinished Podcast tab at the top of the home.